0: Open your copy of God's Word with me, would you? Join me in the letter of James, chapter 4, as we continue to make our way through James' letter to the several Christian churches scattered about the Roman world in their early days, shortly after, not too very long after, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus This sermon series is called What Faith Does, and each week we have looked through James's letter at a different thing that genuine faith in the life of a Christian does. The way that faith works itself out in our lives demonstrates its existence, gives evidence to its presence. Today we'll see in James chapter 4 that faith repents. Faith leads us to turn from sin and walk in holiness. We started to Uh, see this aspect of what faith does uh, last week at the end of James chapter 3 and here in the beginning of James chapter 4. James, the brother of Jesus and leader in the church of Jerusalem, uh, expounds upon uh, where he started or left off uh, at the end of chapter 3. This morning we will see that genuine faith in Christ as Lord does several things. First, it recognizes the threat of sin to relationship with God. Genuine faith in Christ recognizes the threat that sin is to our relationship with God. And then, recognizing the threat that sin is, it leads, faith leads the Christian and the church collectively to embrace humble repentance before God and a changed behavior. The genuineness of our faith will be clearly revealed by our willingness to search our heart for sinful desires and to search our actions for sinful deeds, and then our faith will be demonstrated in our humble and ready repentance from sin. Today we're going to read and seek to understand clearly James 4, 1-12, and then respond obediently to it. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word, James 4, 1-12. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, James writes this, And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God, would you bless your church as we submit ourselves to your word this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. This morning in James 4, 1 through 12, we see James dealing uh, in sort of two different ways or making two points to the church. In the first several verses, verses 1 through 5 or so, James uh, explicates, he illustrates the symptoms of a bigger problem among the churches. Symptoms of a bigger problem. Let's look first at the symptoms that he addresses in verses 1 through 3. He begins by saying, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? problem among the churches is that there's quarreling and fighting with one another. Believers, followers of Jesus, are at war with each other within the church. And the first of the symptoms that that give a picture of a bigger problem is this, that there are passions that are fighting to be fed in the hearts of the believers in the churches. James is showing us What is the natural result of a church that lives according to the earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom that he spoke about at the end of chapter 3? Because the churches that James is writing to have lived by this kind of false wisdom, this earthly, unspiritual, demonic, human wisdom, they have given themselves over to the passions of their sinful hearts. That word for passion in the original language is the same word from which we get our English word hedonism. It's a word that points to reckless self indulgence and pleasure seeking without any consideration of consequences. Their passions are fighting within them to be fed, to be satisfied. Moreover, their passions have led them to desire things that they do not have. And in desiring things that they do not have, they murder in order to obtain them. You desire and do not have, so you murder, says James. Not having but wanting, not being in possession of, but desiring so badly the things that other people have or the things that we can get by means of other people, we are led to become murderous in our attempt to fulfill our passions. Now, it may be that James is confronting actual murder among believers in the churches. That seems unthinkable. And yet, it's also entirely possible that Christians within the early church were so given in to fulfilling their passions, to satisfying their hedonistic desires, that they would kill, literally kill one another to get what they wanted. Could be that James is confronting actual murder in the church. It could be that James is confronting uh, the root of murderous action in the hearts of the people in the church. Could be that James is confronting hateful and murderous thoughts and assumptions about other believers. The Apostle John writes in his first letter, 1 John 3.15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We're reminded of the same uh, uh, idea that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew, that even uh, a hateful uh, disposition in your heart, a hateful thought in your heart toward your brother, is as bad as actually murdering him. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, says James. Another of these symptoms of a bigger problem, covetousness in the church and an inability to get what other people have for yourself. And so that leads to fights. It leads to quarrels in the church, desiring what other people have for themselves. Believers in the churches that James is writing to have been brought to the point of battling and warring against one another. Furthermore, says James, you do not have because you do not ask. So you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, and you don't have the things that you desire because you don't ask for them. James seems to indicate that that if there is something that the church lacks but but does not have, that if individuals in the church feel that they have a need for something but they do not have it, that they continue to lack that thing, they continue to have a need for whatever it is that they feel that they desire because they have not asked God for it. You do not have because you do not ask. Again, the church is attempting to be self-dependent, self-sufficient, even if it means theft and murder to get what they want. Furthermore, says James, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, to spend it on your hedonistic desires. When the church does pray for God's provision, when the the problem among the churches that James is writing to is that they are asking for God to provide things that they want, but they're asking for it wrongly. They make requests to get things that can be used for their own hedonistic pleasure and not for the purposes of God. So when they pray this way, God does not merely answer no to their request, but His ear is deaf toward their prayer altogether. Here again, the symptoms of the problem. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To use the words that James has used earlier in his letter already, brothers, these things ought not to be so. And yet, these things, These serious sins uh, that James is uh, pointing out in the life of the early church are not actually the problem, but only symptoms of a problem. The problem, he tells us in verses 4 and 5, is this. The problem is much greater than in the church, much greater than a misunderstanding. It's much greater than lacking godly wisdom. The problem present in the churches that James is writing to is that they have become, as he says in verse 5, an adulterous people. Excuse me, verse 4, an adulterous people. They have become, literally, idolaters. Now, the reference to adultery is, in reality, a reference to idolatry. Adultery has been a consistent way to illustrate worshiping false gods all throughout Scripture, especially through the life of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We see the uh, the illustration, the analogy of adultery of idolatry as adultery, maybe uh, most viscerally in the life of the prophet Hosea whom God called as his spokesman to the people of Israel to marry a prostitute, to marry a woman of harlotry, to illustrate the kind of relationship that God has with his adulterous people. That though God is a faithful husband, his people Israel have prostituted themselves to other gods. James appears to be calling on that very same image in the life of Hosea, even now as he addresses the adulterous hearts of the churches to whom he is writing. And he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world, that a love relationship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This ancient idea of friendship was far more intimate than our Facebook idea of friendship today in antiquity, in ancient times, to call someone a friend was to share your whole life with that person. Think of the, the picture of friendship between David and Jonathan in uh, uh, First and Second Samuel, the, the close-knit relationship that they had together, sharing their whole lives together. That was the ancient picture of friendship. So then to be a friend of the world is to embrace the worldview of earthly, sinful, human wisdom and everything that, uh, that, that comes from it. Because this wisdom, the wisdom that, that James very clearly spoke against at the end of chapter 3, because that wisdom is opposed to and in contradiction with the wisdom of God, it is impossible to maintain a relationship with both the world and with God. To love the world and be a friend of the world and to love the Lord and be a friend of the Lord. It is impossible to do both at the same time. Remember what Jesus said as recorded in Matthew 6 and in Luke 16 that no one can serve two masters for he'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, says Jesus. James says you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. To be a friend of one is to be an enemy of the other. As such, this unfaithfulness to God among the churches to whom James is writing has provoked God's jealousy. Look at verse 5. James says, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He, God, yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? I'd like to ask you a question. What passage of Scripture is James citing here in verse uh, verse 5? No takers. Okay. It's because he's not citing a specific passage of the Old Testament. What he's doing is paraphrasing a biblical sentiment that we see illustrated in several places throughout the Old Testament. There's no Scripture that he is explicitly citing. But the sentiment holds... James is underscoring and underlining the concept for the people in the churches in his day that God is jealous for the worship and affection of mankind whom he has made in his image. And when that worship that God has made us for, when that relationship that God has designed us to have with Him is given, when our affections are given to other gods, or when our affections, when our worship is given in service to ourself, God's wrath, His righteous anger is incited. It is stirred up against that idolatry, against that adultery. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, we read from the Ten Commandments. God saying this to Moses, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now that may strike some of us as odd because we don't often think of jealousy as being a virtue uh, in our relationships. In fact, we think jealousy is, is, is a, a vice, it's a negative thing. It is, it is not helpful to our relationships to be jealous. And yet, Scripture speaks highly, speaks favorably about the jealousy that God has. How can that be so? Well, friends, understand this, that God's jealousy is entirely unlike human jealousy. Yeah, right? Jealousy is this emotion uh, that wells up within us that, that feels uh, that we have been wrong, that we have been morally offended when something that we hold dear is taken away from us or given for another purpose other than ourselves. Husbands are jealous for their wives' affection and wives are the, the same for their husbands. Sometimes pastors can be jealous for the affection of their churches and church members for their pastors, all of these things would in and of themselves be sinful because the relation is, is this, that I want my wife's love for me, to fulfill me, to make me happy, as though that is the only thing that I need and that is what she has been made for. She has been made to please me and to fulfill me. And when she does things that are are not what I expect her to do, I'm jealous about that. I get angry about that. I want what she, what I think she stands to give me for me. And that is sinful. That is a sinful kind of jealousy. Because my wife is not my property. My wife is not created to please me primarily. My wife is not created to fulfill my every need. My wife has been created by God in His image to know, love, and worship Him only. Yeah, amen. Because God is the creator of all things. Because everything that has ever existed belongs to God by right. Because He's the one who made it. And because everything that he has made, he has made for his glory and for his fame in the cosmos, that that his name might be known in the far reaches of every galaxy in the universe because all of it belongs to God and is for God, he is the only one who can rightly be jealous when we give worship, when we give glory, when we make famous things that are not him. And that is precisely what the churches in James day had begun to do. There are several symptoms. The symptoms in the church are fighting and quarreling and murder and covetousness, but those are symptoms of a deeper problem, the deeper problem of sin that we all have, that all of us have hearts that are prone to run away from God, to give glory, to give worship, to to give honor and praise to things that are not God, to use the people, the situations, the resources in our lives to serve ourselves and not in service to the God who created us and who owns all things. James addresses the symptoms of a bigger problem. Sin in the church is a major problem. It may be strange to think about a church being able to sin corporately, uh, we we because we live in the in the West we have a very individualized or uh, a very very individualized sort of thinking about our lives that that I'm responsible for my sin and not responsible for the sins of other people that my relationship with Jesus is my relationship with Jesus and it doesn't impact or affect other people's relationships with Jesus we tend to see ourselves as sort of a product of Western civilization as islands unto ourselves that every now and then get together in a fancy sort of uh, archipelago. Or whatever. The truth is that God has always worked corporately, has always uh, uh, maintained even his reputation among the corporate gathering of the church. So when the church gets together and there are widespread patterns of sin within the body, even in the lives of individuals, the whole church, if giving uh, tacit approval to that kind of lifestyle, to those kinds of ongoing sin, the church even just ignoring those kinds of sins or, or just telling individuals to repent individually, the church can still be in sin because they're not dealing with sin all, all together. God is jealous. For his glory, he is jealous for the worship of his people, not just as individuals, but as whole bodies together. And the problem among the churches to whom James is writing is that all together they have become guilty of these various patterns of sin. That's the problem. James is good, though, to not leave us with the problem, but to also give us a remedy. Look at the remedy that he provides for the danger of corporate sin. This he gives to us in three different ways. The remedy is threefold. First, humility. The first way to begin to overcome sin in the life of the church is through humility. The, though the sins of James's audience, the sins of the churches to whom he is writing are severe, and their friendship of the world has incited, it has brought about the jealous anger, the jealous wrath of God, there is hope for the church. Because, as he says, In verse 6, God gives more grace. He gives grace to those who humble themselves before him in repentance. To the one who remains in his pride, James cites Proverbs 3.34 in verse 6 to say that God opposes the proud, but he is gracious to the humble, to those who see themselves rightly before God. Humility looks like this in verse 7. Humility begins with submitting yourselves to God, as James says. In light of all of this, in light of the sin that he is pointing out in their lives, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. submission, in this sense, is to surrender totally to the will and the direction of somebody else, in this case, God, to submit yourself totally to the will and direction of God, because His judgment is better than our own. Submission happens in the army from uh, uh, lower officers to commanding officers because commanding officers have have gotten to that position by demonstrating sound judgment and, and an ability to lead in the right way. And so their subordinate officers are expected to submit to the commands of the commanding officer because their judgment is better. So it is with us and God. His judgment is always better. His will and direction is always better. So, rather than following our own desires and, and seeking to fulfill what we think will be pleasing to us, we are to, uh, not to do that, but to submit ourselves to God. James says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Listen, the right response to knowing that we have offended God by our idolatrous, idolatrous and adulterous acts of sin is to get low before God. That's what humility is, is getting low before God. You know who's really good at humility like this? My dog, Barney. (laughs) When Barney does something that he knows he isn't supposed to do, and I find out, like we leave him in the house while we go to work or whatever and come home and find pieces of paper that he snuck off the counter and chewed up into a million little pieces and left all over the floor... When he, when he does something that he knows he isn't supposed to do, and I find out, and he knows that I found out, Barney cannot get low enough to the ground in submission and humility before me. His face can't get far enough away from my gaze. Here's the interesting thing about Barney's humility that I think teaches us something about how we ought to humble ourselves before, before God. There's a relationship that I have with my dog. My dog is man's best friend. And those of you who have dogs know how just intensely loyal dogs are to, the, to whoever they see is like the head of the pack in the home. And I have, I'm so proud I've asserted my dominance <laughs> over this dog in such a way. But here's the thing, that when, when Barney does something he's not supposed to do and, and he finds out, or he knows that I found out that he's done it, he gets real humble. He gets real low real quick. But do you know what he doesn't do? he doesn't run. He may tuck his tail, he may get real low, but he doesn't run and hide. He stays in my presence, but he, he, he shows his submission to my, uh, to, to my dominance over him, right? to my better judgment. Friends, this is what humility looks like before God, that we don't just get low and tuck our tail and cower in a corner, hoping not to face him. But humility before God, part of the remedy to sin is being humble before the Lord, getting low before the Lord, but staying in His presence. Yet too often we sin in the sight of the all-seeing God. And we have the audacity to think that we've managed to hide it from Him. Dear friends, let us be humble as we seek to remedy issues of sin that are in our lives. Second. James says uh, not only uh, is part of the remedy to the sin in the body humility, but then from humility he moves to repentance. We began speaking about what repentance is and looks like last week. Repentance is turning from sin and seeking to follow God. James says first, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Where in chapter 3 verse 15, the wisdom of the sinful heart in the world is called demonic. Here now James indicates that Satan does tempt us to follow our sinful passions the right and repentant response to this temptation is to resist the devil and the promise is that he will flee. This resistance is not to be done in our own power. We we are not intended to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe, fist-to-fist with Satan himself, but rather with reliance upon the help of God. Listen, if you think you can go head-to-head, toe-to-toe, fist-to-fist with Satan and win, you you are uh, gravely deceived. Resist the devil and the power of God, and he will flee from you. Repent. Resist that temptation. Turn from it and seek to draw near to God. James says repentance is more than just resisting the devil, more than just resisting temptation, but it is also this. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repentant Christians repent, not just by resisting the devil, but by changing their actions. Sins are clearly seen in the works of man's hands. So repentance includes being sanctified, being made holy in our actions, in our deeds. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Change the way you live. And yet repentance is not just a matter of what we do, but it's also a matter of our desires and the alignment, the orientation of our hearts. Declaring allegiance to God while befriending the world makes the Christian a double-minded person, incapable of coherent thoughts or desires that, that can please God all of the time. So sinful hands are not the only problem. Sinful hearts are too. Not only do sinful hands need cleansing, but our sinful hearts need purifying that we not be double-minded. Here are the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, says the Lord. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, uh, and plead the widow's case. Furthermore, James says, repentance looks like this. It looks like being wretched and mourning and weeping. Letting our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy turning to gloom. Repentance displays, exhibits genuine sorrow over our sin, knowing how harmful, how dangerous it is. When we recognize sin, when Christians recognize that we have continued to be in different ways in our lives, rebellious against God, we should uh, grieve over it. David, the king of Israel, writes in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, over sin he says to the lord you will not delight in sacrifice or i would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering rather the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart o god you will not despise let us learn to have a godly sorrow for our sin james goes further to describe what repentance looks like in verses 11 and 12 he he uh, returns to practical matters of repentant living he says do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Those the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of it, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Christians, repenting Christians are not to speak slanderous words about one another. It seems to be the case, seems to be part of one of the symptoms of the, uh, of the greater problem among the churches that James is writing to, that not only are they fighting and quarreling, but they're speaking evil of each other also. Now, this statement that James makes here in these verses has a bit broader effect beyond just slander, just, just speaking evil things uh, 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 about other people in the, in the church. It includes scorn, it includes mocking, it includes malediction, rudeness, gossip, Such evil speech about fellow Christians is especially contrary to the law of God, James says. By this, he almost certainly means the royal law that he referred to early in in his letter, the royal law of loving neighbor as one loves himself. So to speak evil and judgmental words to another believer, or worse, to speak judgmental words behind the back of another believer as gossip, is to stand as judge over the eternal destiny of that other person and as judge over the law that God has given. To speak evil, to speak a word of condemnation about a fellow believer, about a fellow Christian, is to say that the law to love neighbor is no longer binding. It doesn't apply to me. I can make whatever sort of conclusion I want about your life, and that's up to me to do. Is it to give a declaration that only a judge can make. Rather, James says, there is only one true lawgiver and judge, Who is able to save souls or condemn them to hell. And that lawgiver, that judge, is not you, is not me. Now, these verses 11 and 12 about not judging a brother are not verses, are not a passage of scripture in service to the popular notion that Christians cannot or should not discern the sins of fellow believers or even discern the sins of those outside the church. This is not James saying, you need to just live and let live, love and accept people just as they are. You don't get to tell them what is right or wrong. Rather, James is saying that the imperative to love one another toward repentance, even as each individual is walking in and toward repentance himself, is where the church should be going. So James is not saying when you see sin in the church, when you see sin in the life of your fellow uh, Christian, he's not saying don't tell them anything about it. He's not saying don't tell them that it's wrong. What he is saying is that in your own heart and in your own speech, you may not carry the connotation or, or even uh, uh, hint at the sort of idea that in our heart we are saying to that, that fellow Christian, you are going to hell because of this sin. Right? Rather, James is saying hold one another accountable, point out sin when you see it, but you are not the one who gives judgment upon the final destiny of the individual soul. That is between them and God. The remedy to the symptom of churchwide sin, and even sin in our individual lives, begins with humility, getting low before God, recognizing that He is holy and that we are not, that He stands far above every other power in the universe and we have offended Him. And then it moves into repentance of seeing our sin for what it is, having a sorrow over it, turning from our sin to turn and follow after God in acts of repentance. The remedy to sin gets better still though because getting over our sin or moving past repenting of sin is not just in humility and changing our actions, but real repentance rounds itself out By receiving the grace that God gives. Return to verse 6 for a moment with me. Let this sink into your heart today. James says, He gives more grace. God gives more grace. Your sin, our sins, have made an infinitely glorious and majestic God jealous for our worship. But this God, who is rightly jealous for His glory, does not execute His wrath upon us immediately, but instead has grace for us. As James says in verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Though you have sinned against Him, He is not infinitely far from you, but desires to be close to you. So draw near to Him, and He will come near to you as the Christian resists satan on the one hand he is to on the other hand or in response to it draw near to god simultaneously yeah. but if you resist satan you will be drawing near to god but if you resist god you'll be drawing near to satan the two are diam- diametrically opposed to one another and and our relationship to the two is an equal is an equal and opposite sort of relationship so that as we grow closer to god we draw further from satan as we go closer to satan we draw further from god you follow But the promise is this, that if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. This is not a verse that is expressly about the salvation of the person who is not yet a Christian yet. But rather the repentance of the Christian who recognizes sin and who desires to return to closeness with God through obedience to Him. There is more grace yet to be received by the repenting Christian. You have not received yet all the grace you can receive from God at your moment of salvation. Although you have received all the grace that is necessary for salvation, there is grace day by day, more and more with each passing moment from God as long as we continue to draw near to him. There is hope for the follower of Jesus who sees his or her sin and turns from it to draw near to God. That hope is fulfilled in the promise that God loves to draw near in comfort and strength to repenting Christians who turn from their sin and draw near to God. Receive the grace he gives. Draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. As James says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and the grace that he gives is this, that he will exalt you. He will lift you up. This is the promise that gives hope for the Christian that in humility and brokenness over sin, God will lift the head of the repenting Christian. The question you must ask yourself is this, which is better? To walk with your head held high in the pride of sin or to have your head lifted by God through repentance? Consider the teaching of Jesus from Matthew twenty-three, twelve, when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself Will be exalted. Sin is dangerous. It tears at the fabric of relationships within the church and within our families and, and with our uh, relationships with people in the world. It tears at the fabric of our relationship with God. It's a problem. It's a deep problem. And when sin goes unaddressed, in, not just in the lives of individual Christians, but in, in the context of the whole church, There are grave consequences. But even in light of the consequences of sin, there is hope. There is hope that God can heal, that God can renew, that God can mend the things that have been broken as we turn in repentance to Him as individuals, yes, and certainly as a church as well. I have one point of application, and we're going to put it to practice this morning together. That in light of the problem of sin and the remedy to it, That James outlines for us, one command for us together as a body, that we must regularly practice the discipline and rhythm of humble repentance and affirmation of God's grace. Seems a strange thing to say in today's context, that the church should repent corporately. My sins are my sins. They don't belong to another person. Yeah, but in the church, we all have sins together. In this room right now are dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of sins that have gone yet unconfessed and unrepented of before God this morning. Dear friends, our sins are a problem. Even before we have come to know Christ, our our sins kept us from knowing God rightly and truly, being in relationship with Him the way that He has designed us. And even as believers, our, our ongoing sin that we don't confess and don't repent of continue to hinder our worship of God and our living rightly before Him. Let us then be a church that heeds the warning and the hope that James gives to the churches by regularly practicing the discipline and rhythm of repentance from sin, and who doesn't stay in sorrow over our sin, but who, affirms, uh, who, uh, who seeks to have our spirits affirmed, our souls affirmed by the giving of God's grace as we turn from sin to trust in Jesus again. Friend, I'd like to lead us this morning in a time of humble repentance together as a church. You may in your heart be resisting this. I don't know. It may feel awkward for you to think that as a church we need to repent of sins corporately before God, but James says it is good to do so. And I want to do what the Bible says we ought to do. So I'd invite you to just set aside whatever uh, skepticism you may have for a moment, uh, whatever uncertainty you may have about what we're going to do together, and enter into this process of corporate repentance. First, here's what we do. We get low before God. We get humble. We recognize the truth of God's holiness and his greatness. See our li- our human limitations, see our sins rightly for what they are in the light of who God is. Friend, bow your head in prayer with me where you are. Get low before God in your heart. Maybe you need to get low before God bodily. Maybe you need to kneel at your seat or get down on your face in in the aisle or wherever there is space this morning, but get low in your heart before God. Here are the words from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because he cares for you. Humble yourselves now, church.